Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is best-selling author Emily St. John Mandel, whose latest novel, The Glass Hotel, follows her enormously popular and influential 2014 novel, Station Eleven. We had hoped to welcome Emily to Winston-Salem on June 2nd, and though she won't be able to visit us then, I'm happy to say now, Emily, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much. Nice to be here, and I wish I could have been there in person. I was looking forward to the trip. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll work it out at some point. Um, I feel like I feel like I can't have a conversation with you in the spring of 2020 without at least first touching on your novel Station Eleven, which is set against. <laughs> That's fair, sure. Yeah, I mean, for for those few listeners who may not know, the novel set against the backdrop of a global flu pandemic. Um, what's it like to look back on that novel now in the present circumstance? And do you think it has something essential to say to the world in this moment. Um, I'll answer the first question first. It's weird you know, looking back on that novel, the present circumstance. Um, you know, it makes me realize that I guess this is inevitable infection. You know, you make it up. And what I'm realizing now, living through this moment, is that I really didn't need to make the mortality rate that high in Station Eleven. Now that's a uh, that's a frankly somewhat implausible strain of the flu that wipes out something like ninety nine percent of the population. And it just never would have occurred to me what incredible disruption can come about from a pandemic with a single-digit mortality number, which uh, which seems to be the case with COVID-19. So that's been interesting to realize. And then another thing that had just never occurred to me was the prelude to pandemic. So I think I kind of thought of it as this sort of black or white scenario. You know, you're either in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. But the dread of the approaching pandemic, um, in New York anyway, and I assume in other places, was so intense. And that was just something that I hadn't thought about before I lived through it. You know, the situation in New York was that, of course, we knew it was coming. Uh, But at the same time, it just kind of didn't seem real. And you'd be like, oh, normally I'd hug you, but there's this pandemic. But then we'd hang out together and take our kids to school in the morning. You know, so this weird kind of uh, cognitive dissonance there of just not quite believing what was coming. so yeah, those are two things that I uh, that I feel like I kind of didn't get right in Station Eleven. So it's interesting to have the real experience and look back on that. And then to answer the second part of your question about whether there's something essential in art in these moments, I think there is. And it's one of those things that's kind of hard to talk about without sounding a little bit grandiose, but. Uh, You know, I think there is something in art that maybe reminds us of our humanity a little bit in these moments when there's a lot of chaos and darkness. And perhaps in a less exalted way, just kind of broadens our horizons. You know, I don't know about you, but I've pretty much been in my house for seven or eight weeks. So there's there's such a wonderful feeling of transport and reading a novel at this point. Um. So let's let's move on to the new book, um, The Glass Hotel. First of all, just tell our listeners a little bit about the novel. Um, how, how how would you describe it? Uh, with difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's a very strange book. So when I was promoting Station Eleven, 
that was the easiest elevator pitch in history. They would say, what's your new book about? I would say, well, it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America mic drop. You know, it was just super straightforward. Uh, The Glass Hotel is not straightforward. It's a novel that circles two events. A massive Ponzi scheme collapses in New York at the height of the last economic collapse in 2008. And then 10 years later, a woman disappears from a container ship. So it explores how those events are related, the wives that are caught up in both of those moments. And it's also a ghost story. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you could accurately describe it as anything from you know, a white-collar crime novel to a ghost story. And it, it's, yeah, it's kind of both. It's, um, I've been struggling to describe this book for literally two years. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I... For me, it was one of those books that I couldn't put down, and yet I couldn't quite put my finger on why I couldn't put it down. It wasn't like <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't exactly I trying to solve it. a mystery or something, but it but it just it, it really drew me in. Um, you in, in in this book and in, in some of your other books too, um, you move around in time quite a bit in your narratives, and I wonder yeah. if you could talk to us a little bit about just your process of creating those timelines, those time jumping stories. How do you work out that structure? and keep everything organized just in a a practical way? Yeah, um, with difficulty. I I don't write, I don't write from an outline because I've always been afraid I'd get bored if I knew exactly how the book was going to end. So I just kind of wing it. I jump all over the place. I write a couple of chapters from one character's perspective and then kind of get stuck and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I jump to a different character and a different timeline. And uh, that first draft is as messy as one might imagine. You know, it's, uh, it's chaos after a year or so. Uh, so once I have the first draft, I feel like I'm less than halfway done in terms of writing the book. Yeah. And for me, the book really comes together. I really feel like I find the novel in the revisions. So I'll take about a year, year and a half to write a first draft, and then twice that long you know, to, uh, to do the revisions. Um, the Glass Hotel took five years to write, and probably four of those years of revisions and trying to figure out what this book was. So, yeah, my process is really about just revising over and over and over again. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm kind of figuring out the structure as I go yeah. along with everything else. I would say from a technical perspective that the structure was absolutely the most difficult thing about writing The Glass Hotel. I ended up restructuring it three times in ways that were so different that it really felt like I wrote three different books. Mm-hmm. It was pretty it was pretty crazy with this one. So you're literally like cutting up scenes and moving them around and uh, yeah, yeah, moving them around um you know, at making huge edits, like, yeah. wait, do we need this character? You know, the uh, right. the office right. chorus was originally something like eight people, and by the final draft, it's like four or five. Yes. There aren't yeah. that many people left yeah. standing. Um, yeah, trying to simplify things, trying to make it more straightforward. Um, oh, and then you asked earlier about the sort of, you know, from a practical standpoint. So although I don't start out with an outline, I do sometimes find it helpful to develop an outline as I'm working on the revisions. Yeah, yeah. So for, um, for Station Eleven, I had an Excel spreadsheet that was really useful. And I just had um, a, you know, a line in Excel for each chapter. Um, the level of detail would be like 
chapter one intro to Jeevan slash Arthur dies on stage, you know, so really right, like, right. Um, you know, not, not close detail. Um, and that gives you kind of a bird's eye view. For the Glass Hotel, I use software called Scrivener, which is really good for writing a nonlinear novel. Um, the way it works is you have your text window on the right, but then your, uh, your document's kind of made up of all of these separate files so you can drag and drop into a, into a different order on, on a left-hand pane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that was really helpful for that from a practical standpoint. So there's a, there's a lot going on in this novel as we're starting to, starting to sense already, and we'll, we'll talk more about it. But I'm, I'm also curious to know, where did, for you in the writing process, where did this novel begin? What was the, the impetus that made you say, ah, here's a, here's a new book? Right. Um, I was fascinated by the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, which, for anybody who's not familiar, was a massive crime. Um, that was a $65 billion, with a B, uh, Ponzi scheme that collapsed in New York in December 2008. And something I do want to emphasize is that every character in The Glass Hotel is completely fictional. But the crime is very closely based on Madoff's crime. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any background in um, you know the financial world, so it, it was kind of a foreign world to me to write about. But there was something so compelling to me about the scale and audacity of that crime. You know, the numbers were crazy. It went on for decades. And I have to say, though, the specific thing that really drew me to it was the staff. So, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but about six or seven of Madoff staffers went to prison for their roles in the crime. Because if you're a billionaire, as he was, you're not formatting those fake account statements by yourself. You know, so, you have yeah. people to do that for you. So, yeah, there was a whole office of people whose job was to show up at work on Monday and perpetuate a massive crime together, which is just kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, You know, when the story broke, I had a really great day job. I was a part-time administrative assistant in a cancer research lab at the Rockefeller University in New York. And I just found myself thinking about the camaraderie that I had with my coworkers and just imagining how much more intense and deranged you know that uh, that dynamic would be if we were all showing up at work to uh to do a crime together yeah so so the uh the first chapter of the book that i wrote you know after 20 rounds of revision or something it eventually became chapter 10 in the final draft of the glass hotel so that's the first chapter from the perspective of the ponzi staff it begins with we crossed the line yeah your, your novels have a lot of characters in them. And for a guy like me who can never keep people straight on TV shows or sometimes even in real life, it always amazes me that I don't have that problem with, with your novels. You are able to create these unique and interesting characters that, that stand out on my mind. I think sometimes it's the names. I don't know. But what do you see as the essence of creating a character? Um, I really appreciate you saying that. They, um, they've got to be interesting. You know, I guess that's the main thing. Um, yeah, I read a novel recently where I couldn't keep the characters straight, even though there were only like four of them. And, you know, I was trying to analyze what it was. And I think, you know, they were just too similar and none of them were interesting enough. So, yeah, I think, I guess that's the main thing. But it's hard for me to isolate, um, like, what I do that makes something work in a novel. Because for me, it just kind of all, you know, it's like all roads lead to Rome. It all comes back to revision for me. I just, I just go over that book so many times, 
trying to improve everything, including the character development. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate you saying that. What about names? I mean, I, you you don't have a lot of people in the book who are named, you know, Tom and Joe and Sue and Jane. Um, do you do you like? Are you always on the lookout for good names or? Yeah, I am. It's, it's sort of a hobby that I have with my husband. Um, you know, he comes across a lot. He talks to a lot of people in his line of work, and we'll sometimes email each other like a great name, you know, and then he'll yeah. send it to me. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of keep an eye out for interesting names. The uh, the names of characters in my books, it's usually a name that I like. You know, so Ella Kaspersky is a fairly minor character in The Glass Hotel, but she's one of my very favorite characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ella was my was my grandmother's name, and she was a very smart, uh, pretty difficult person. So, like, somehow that prickliness, I felt like, you know, that name sort of carried the right kind of charge for me. Um for that character. And yeah, usually it's just, uh, it's either generational. Um, you know, you probably wouldn't have a little kid named Ralph. Now it's my uncle's name and I have never met a Ralph younger than 60. Um, I I have have like a a nine year old nephew who's named Ralph. And I think think he's one of a kind. I'm going to tell my uncle the next time I see him. I think you're right. There are certain, there's certain, like I had a great grandmother named Myrtle and I don't think I've known anybody named Myrtle in 80 years, you know, so. um. Yeah, I've read recently that there are no more Garys. It's like a a Gary tragedy has happened. Yeah, 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 it's interesting how names come and go. But yeah, usually it's just names that I like. So the novel, speaking of names, the novel's called The Glass Hotel. But it spends only a, a small amount of time actually in the eponymous hotel. Um, if, yeah. if you can do this without giving too much away, tell us why you chose a title that focused on that particular spot. Uh, the honest answer is that titles are really hard. <laughs> well, yes. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I, yeah, I don't dislike the title, but I've never loved it. I, I think it's fine. Um, I wish I could have come up with something better. So, you know, with with Station Eleven, I felt like that was a pretty sharp, good title. The uh, the book was originally The Traveling Symphony, which had kind of placed in the same category title-wise as The Glass Hotel. Like, Mm -hmm. it's fine, it's absolutely serviceable, kind of forgettable. So, yeah, that is a real problem that that the book has, I think. You know, I get all kinds of emails um, congratulating me for the success of The Glass House. Like, that happens all the time. Uh, So it's just, yeah, it's not... A particularly memorable title. Um, I, I wish I could have come up with something better. I, I will say though, there is something about the hotel in the book as this kind of um, well, this point where characters come together kind of repeatedly. So, you know, I guess you could make an argument for it making sense there, but I don't love it. Why did you want this hotel to exist? It exists almost apart from the rest of the world, and elsewhere in the novel too. You show. Um, wealth, for instance, is creating this same kind of separateness and, and isolation. Uh, and obviously we see that uh, same thing playing out in Station Eleven. But in, in terms of the of the hotel, why did you want it to be so sort of apart from, I mean, people don't even have cell phone reception. It's very um, away yeah. from everything. Yeah. <clears throat> I, um, I felt like that made it more interesting. I had kind of an epic promotional tour for Station Eleven. And, you know, to... Uh, I'll, I'll you know, caveat and preface this by saying that it's an incredibly fortunate circumstance to get any kind of a tour at all. So I was always deeply grateful for it. But it did also go on for a really long time, which meant that 
I just stayed in so many hotels mm-hmm. in seven countries over a period of years. And at some point, I think I just found myself thinking about, well, what would be my ideal hotel? Like, what, what might that be like? And that really is the glass hotel. You know, it was kind of my vision of the dream hotel that I wish existed in the world <laughs> and that I could stay in. Um, there's something kind of interesting about hotels for me. It's this sort of liminal in-between space. The really great hotels, like ones that are really well-run, they kind of feel like their own little self-enclosed, self-sufficient world where you sort of feel like you're outside the rules of normal life and that anything's possible. So, you know, when you need a cup of tea, you just pick up the phone and that appears for you. You know, which uh, room service still feels like magic to me sometimes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... Yeah, I I was thinking about that phenomenon of the hotel as self-enclosed world. And I'm just thinking about how much more, um, how much more interesting and kind of heightened that might be if that self-enclosed world were in a really intensely remote place. So I changed the name of the place, but in real life, there's a hamlet called Quatsino in British Columbia. Um, It's a tiny little place, about 85 people way up at the north end of Vancouver Island. And I stayed there for about two weeks when I was 14. And it just really made an impression on me. It was exactly the way I described Kayed in the book. Um, you know, tiny hamlet, deep in an inlet, no roads in or out, um, no grid. You know, you get there on a water taxi. If you're a kid there, you go to school on the mail boat, which is what it sounds like. That's the boat carrying the outgoing mail. So, yeah, just really intensely remote and incredibly beautiful. So I think I just liked the, ju- the uh, juxtaposition of those two ideas of this beautiful, high-functioning luxury hotel in a really incongruous place. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to go stay there if it becomes real, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, 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 I hesitate to say this because I don't want to give things away because people are going to love this book so much. But, you know, every every one of these characters that you draw – and I almost consider the hotel to be a character. Every one of them has an arc. Every one of them has a fate. And I just thought the fate of the hotel in some ways was so beautiful. Um, it's not really a question. It's just, hey, readers, you're going you're gonna to like the way that, that <laughs> right. I think. I, it was just it was oh, unexpected. Thank you. I, I agree and, with you. Yeah. 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 There was something beautiful about it and kind of surreal. Yeah. Um, so there, there are certain topics which recur in some of your novels. And one of them is international shipping, which may not sound like a super dramatic thing, but you, you like mine it for some great, uh, some great work in, in multiple books. And it shows up in station 11 and the singer's gun. Um, why, why international shipping? Does this hold some meaning for you personally? Um, not really. I'm just fascinated by it. And I'm pretty much the only one. Yeah, I've gotten used to interviewers. I glazing over as the subject comes up. Um, I think what fascinates me about the shipping industry is that to most people, it's, pretty much invisible. You know, how often in your day-to-day life do you think about container ships? Um, but at the same time, it's this incredibly vast part of our economy without which the world would look quite different. You know, we, uh, we produce so few things at this point uh, in this country and in Canada where I'm from. So pretty much everything on and around us came to us over the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, the components for my laptop, the table I'm working at, um, you know, my pants. Like, it's just like everything you got. You start paying attention to where things are from, and not many things are from here. So we don't really, we don't really notice that 
uh, we don't really think about the people who piloted your breakfast cereal through the Panama Canal, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's the combination of vastness of scale and invisibility that makes it kind of interesting to me. And it's also this kind of weird, dangerous frontier. Um, you know, if something happens to you at sea, and something happens at sea, this isn't really a giveaway because it's literally page one of the book. Yeah. Um, you know, suppose, as somebody does in the book, you fall off of a ship, fled to Panama um, in international waters. Technically, that's a tiny floating piece of, of Panama. Um, Panama's not going to investigate a foreigner disappearing at sea on the far side of the world. You know, was there even a crime? Um, yeah, there's just... Uh, these people sort of work in this very dangerous space between countries. And, yeah, it's just uh, it's a really interesting world to me. Yeah, I love the way that, and it's not just in shipping, it comes up other places in your books. You sort of get at these liminal spaces, and the way you describe mm -hmm. the ports, it, it, it reminded me of, again, going back to hotels, of being in different cities on book tour or whatever, and you're like, every Marriott is exactly the same. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're all just the same. And you yeah, say, exactly. You know, when they're stopping at these ports... Could be Charleston, could be Johannesburg, could be Rotterdam. For the people on the ships, it doesn't really make a difference, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, same as airports. You know, before the pandemic, I traveled a lot. I, I've lost count of how many times I've passed through the Atlanta airport because it's a major Delta hub. Oh, I've yeah. never been to the city of Atlanta. You know, I've flown in and out literally dozens of times at this point. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the ports are the same. You know, the port of Salalah isn't that different from the port of Rotterdam, um, at least judging by Google Images. Maybe yeah, there are yeah. deep levels of nuance that I'm missing. But, yeah, they're almost, um, yeah, they are these very strange in-between places that can't really be said to have much in common with the countries where they're ostensibly located. Yeah. There was a saying in my household, and this was when I was young, so this was many years ago in the airline industry, that uh, when you're done with this life, whether you're going one direction or the other, you will pass through the Atlanta airport. You know, that was kind of... <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'll relatively to Atlanta. Um, there's another thing that, that you come back to in your novels, and that is, you, you mentioned, the hotel is in this... Um, by title, fictional um, uh, island on the on the western coast of Canada, um, but you have you you grew up in that part of the world, and is that correct? And what, 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 I did, yeah. So, is, yeah, tell I, us a little bit about that sorry, about that, what that background was like, and and then how it how it has come into your novels. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I was born on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, mm -hmm. um, which for anybody unfamiliar with the geography is huge. That's yeah. um, I'm trying to think of a reasonable comparison. It's, oh, I don't know, about eight times the size of Long Island. So, it, yeah, it's enormous. Um, so I lived there until I was 10, and then we moved to Denman Island, which is a tiny island, same size and shape as Manhattan, but with about a 1,000 people. And that's between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And if that sounds familiar to anybody listening, um, that is the island of Station 11. Right, I just right. slightly changed the name. So, yeah, I... I grew up there, uh, left home to go to a dance conservatory when I was 18 and sort of drifted in a circuitous way toward writing. And it's not until the last couple of books that I've found myself drawn to writing about that place. Um, and I wasn't really avoiding it for any particular reason with the first three books. But the, uh, yeah, the last couple of books I found it kind of interesting to write about. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing we encounter again and again in your novels, and to me, it's I think 
maybe it's the thing that I like the best. And it's, we have, um, I, I first came to station 11, I should say, by way of background from one of our bookmarks employees, Beth super bus, who I'm just going to warn you right now is your biggest fan. Um, (laughs) and I actually consulted with her about that. She like, originally she was going to sit in on the interview when you were going to be here. She was so excited to meet you, but, um, Everybody who shops at Bookmarks has a copy of Station Eleven if they've spoken to Beth ever, you know. Um, but she talked. She she refers to this um, sort of theme in your in your novels as a lattice of coincidence, um, which I think of as sort of this gradual unfolding of the interconnectedness, sometimes very unexpected interconnectedness between your different characters. Can you talk about that and talk about what that interconnectedness means to you? Yeah, sure. Um... If we're to be honest here, I mean, I think part of that is just the artifice of novels. But, you know, as a novelist, you do inevitably push the uh, the outer limits of plausibility where coincidence is concerned. Because, you know, life doesn't usually um, form itself into narrative arcs, of course, you know, um, quite as smoothly as we'd like in our fiction. Um, excuse me. I... I have a kind of fascination with these weird secret connections. Um, it's kind of in my own life. You know, it's so interesting when you encounter them. I, I had this really weird moment years ago where I was, I think I was visiting family in British Columbia. And I was talking to this woman who I'd known on Denman Island. And, uh, and she said, oh, you're in New York. My daughter is in New York. Her daughter was a pianist. She said, where in New York are, are you? And at the time, I was on the Upper West Side, so I you know, gave her the address. She said, huh, you're at 122 West 81st Street. My daughter's at 124 West 81st Street. You know, <laughs> so those moments when you realize you've been living next door to this person who grew up um, you know, on your tiny island in British Columbia, like, I feel like that kind of thing kind of happens all the time. You know, Every now and again, you find out about it, but... How often have you lived next door to, you know, somebody with a weird connection to your past or a best friend of yours who, um, you know, you just never find out about? And I don't know. I find myself kind of fascinated by those secret connections. To me, the, I, you know, there's something almost comforting in, in those connections and in the ways specifically that they play out in your novels. Because in, in two senses, and in, in, I guess in both senses, it makes you feel like you're in the hands of somebody who's arranging things well, you know, but but I know that if you will introduce a character that seems to have nothing to do with anything that's going on, and I know eventually that person is going to have some, you know, there's going to be a point to it. It's not just, you know, background noise. Um, Right, right. And if nothing else, they'll be in the next novel. Well, and then that's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is that, that this connectedness between um, characters extends beyond the boundaries of a single novel for you. And we encounter briefly in this novel characters we recognize from station 11. Um, we have a character, uh, you know, as a reader, one of my favorite moments um, was when you have a character who muses about an alternate reality in which what if the Georgian flu hadn't been contained in the early stages, you know? Um, yeah. Do, what, what do you, what do you feel is the, is, is that all just for fun or is there a deeper meaning into this sort of cross connections between books? Um, it's not quite for fun, but I don't know if there's anything super deep about it. I, I think it might just be a certain longing for order in the universe. I have, uh, you know, I do find myself drawn toward linking my books together in these ways. And partly it just has to do with really becoming attached to particular characters. 
So when I wrote Station Eleven, I really liked Miranda Carroll, uh, the character who makes a very brief appearance in the Glass Hotel. Uh, who's of course a major character in Station Eleven, and I realized as I was writing her that I wanted to I wanted to use her again, but that presented a pretty obvious problem because you know um, I kill her off in Station Eleven. Right. So how does that work? So I um, I tried to lay the groundwork in Station Eleven for using some of those characters again by just trying to establish that idea of alternate universes or parallel realities. Yeah. Yeah. So in Station Eleven, there's a scene where a couple of characters are in the post-apocalypse. They're sitting by a road, kind of playing this game where they're just kind of riffing to each other. You know, what's your imaginary alternate universe? Um, oh, let's say an alternate universe where the Georgia flu never happened. And then I tried to echo that in the Glass Hotel, where I have Vincent, um, who I'd say is the main character in the Glass Hotel, walking down the street, kind of playing the same game with herself, just yeah. kind of spinning off into ideas about how the world might have unfolded differently. You know, as you, as you just said, like, for example, a world where the Georgia flu hadn't been quite so swiftly contained. So I was really trying to set up the idea that um, the Glass Hotel and Station Eleven are not really the same universe. Know, these kind of parallel realities, yeah. and I know I know some people miss that because I just read a really nice review of the Glass Hotel where the reviewer talked about how it was clearly sad in the last moments before civilization collapsed. The Georgia Flood. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not everybody picks it up, but yeah. I like that idea. There being different realities. I mean, I love that too. I love to bring um, a character who was a main character in one book on for a, a one line appearance in in the next book. You know. Um, because too, it also makes me feel like, uh, even if the books aren't, you know, super connected, it, it, it makes me feel like my, my career is connected in some way, you know, that I'm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that longing for order. Um, and I think it also adds a certain, de- uh, depth to minor characters Yeah. where, yeah, you know, the character makes a very brief appearance in one book, you know, it's the waitress or whatever, like if somebody is playing a, a bit part in the scene. But I think as a reader, it's nice to be like, oh, wait, this is the person whose life I followed in detail, you know, right. two or three books ago. Right. right. Yeah. I, I will admit that if you had taken the cover off of this book and ripped off the title page, I think I still would have known I was reading an Emily St. John Mandel novel. Um, oh, that's interesting. And, and, and I, I kind of have the answer to this question for me, but, I, but I'd like to hear your question, your answer to this is, what do you see as your sort of literary signature? What, what makes... Uh, an Emily St. John Mandel novel different from others? I don't know. I <laughs> I feel like I might be the worst qualified person to answer that. Just because, you know, of course we have no objectivity about our own work. Um, you know, I do, I do have an interest in, um, you know, in following these characters live. But as I say that, I'm thinking, well, but who doesn't, you know, that's all of the interesting novels follow characters' lives. Um, it's always nonlinear. Um, yeah, I'm grasping at straws. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, probably my editor would have a better answer for that than I would. I mean, I think to me, to a certain extent, it's yeah, it's what you said, and it's the things we've been talking about. This, this, these layers of coincidence, but there's also just the way your scenes unfold, um, where there's this very rich detail. I mean, I'm thinking like the scene near the beginning of the novel, uh, when Paul goes to the nightclub, you know, and, and you don't really have any idea what it has to do with anything, but you're just loving being in the scene. And then a hundred pages later, you find out 
something else about this scene. And then 150 pages later, you find out something else about the scene. And then the singer right. shows up again, you know, and, uh, I, I think, I think to me, that's, there's something about that, um, that combination of, of writing and scenes that are very detailed, but not necessarily revealing the importance of the details until much later. Oh, that's interesting. Right. I like that idea. So as you said before, the Glass Hotel Center is on, um, on a Ponzi scheme. Um, and there are other sorts of theft, too. Um, I don't, again, don't want to give too many things away, but like Paul is guilty of a theft. And, 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 yeah. and in The Singer's Gone and in The Last Light Night in Montreal, there's also elements of crime and shady dealings. Is there something in particular that draws you to the criminal element? Um. Yeah, I was going to say it's just that it makes for good fiction because you have that kind of inherent uh, tension. I, I don't know. Maybe it's vicarious, too. I, I'm, I'm really square. I've never stolen anything in my life. <laughs> Maybe it's interesting to write about people who are really different from me in that way. Yeah. Morella says to Vincent at one point, I just again, this is another one of these... Um, these metaphors that I really like the way you spin out. She says, money is its own country. Um, and, and part of this novel we spend in that country. Um, do you think yeah. the notion of money as its own country sort of gets at an essential flaw in capitalism? Um, it might be a flaw, but I don't know how you get around it. Yeah. And I don't know that it's specific to capitalism. You know, I think, mm-hmm. like, obviously, even in communist countries, there would be the elites who yeah. are functionally living in a different country than everybody else. But it's an idea that really interests me. I grew up in a very working-class environment. And to be clear, I have no complaints. I have great parents who love books. But, you know, as I've grown up and moved in different circles, at this point, I would say almost all of the people I encounter grew up middle class or upper middle class. And it's fascinating to see um, what a different set of expectations they have of the world and different understanding of the way the world works than the people I grew up with. And it often seems to me that that cultural difference is so profound that it really is like we're from different countries in a way that has nothing to do with the U.S.-Canada border. You know, it's um, it's a really interesting phenomenon to me. I have to say, as, as an American reader, um, I had to keep reminding myself uh, that that you have these Canadian characters because they would talk about being in a foreign country. And I was like, but, but they're in New York. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, some, the, the, you have the character Vincent who, who lives in this age of money, she calls it for a while. And some characters or some authors will subtly suggest that the fortunes of a character might be changing at some point in the future. You're you're not subtle about this. You don't you don't pull any punches when, for instance, you just state outright the age of money lasted a little under three years. Um, and and there are other places where you do that too. Why why do you like to be direct so direct about that sort of statement? Um, I feel like it raises questions that heighten the narrative tension. Mm-hmm. So when you hear the age of money happen, you know, lasted a little under three years. My hope is that a reader will be like, "Whoa, what's about to happen?" Like you know, the rug's about to be pulled out under their feet, which. It very much is. So, yeah, I see that as, as a strategy for creating more tension. So after the age of money, it probably is not going to – I don't think I'm putting out too many spoilers here because we all know what happened. You said the Ponzi scheme collapsed, and we all know what happened to – Yeah, exactly. That's probably you, literally the jacket copy. I don't think we're anything. You in some detail about life in prison. Um, and, and I'm just curious to know, did you – is that all from your imagination? Did you do research? I know you haven't spent time in prison, but how did you find out what that life was like? 
um, I hope I got him more or less right. You know, it's a little bit fudged in the book because the guy's in prison, but he's also sort of losing his grip on reality. Yeah. So things yeah. are a little hazy, which is kind of about as far as I could go in terms of realism for prison life. You know, there's there's so much information about prison life at this point, kind of in the popular culture. So, you know, everything from Orange is the New Black to um, The Wire. You know, we've seen a lot of depictions of prison life. So I think, you know, we all sort of have this idea at this point of what it looks like. Um, you know, there's also a lot of really good writing on the prison experience at this point. Essays, articles, even fiction, where it's clear that the novelist has done a ton of research. So I had kind of a grasp of what that world might be like. Um, and then I actually had the opportunity to visit a prison in the Midwest, which was kind of amazing. This was um, this was right before the final edits for the Glass Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I was invited to visit this prison in, in, in Illinois. It was actually two prisons. It was a men's medium security facility. And then right outside the walls, there was a women's minimum security prison camp, like Martha Stewart Prison. Um, and to, yeah, and so all of the detail about the yard, that uh, that really came from that visit. And I was so grateful for that experience because, you know, um, partly because you'll never meet a more serious or committed group of readers than, um, than you know, people in a medium security facility. Yeah. Like, yeah. they've got a lot of time. The visit means something because it's not something that happens very often. So that was the first time I've done a reading where the crowd was reading along some of the copies of the book. Um, but then also just sort of the, uh, the details that, you know, you just might not get from um, from secondary sources. Like when I was walking across the yard to get to the library, um, just this feeling of a kind of, um, I guess I would call it an aesthetic impoverishment. You know, there just what there just weren't enough colors in the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was green grass, blue sky, cinder block, uh, blue trim here and there. Uh, beige and gray uniforms, and that was it, like nothing else. Um, when a bird landed on the yard, there was something just kind of miraculous about it because it was the only unregulated movement in the landscape. So, yeah, I was so grateful that, that I got to actually see what that looked like. Yeah, I love the way, the, the way you depict it as a sort of almost monochromatic, which, which means that when, uh, when your character sees a color all of a sudden one day, you know something's wrong or something's something's up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's return to the beginning of the book for a minute and, and tell us about uh, where you got the idea from, or where did this come from? These two pieces of graffiti, both of which appear on windows. One of them is sweep me up. And the other one is why don't you swallow broken glass? Why these particular phrases and especially why on a window? Um, the window I guess I thought of the window as a sort of a creepy, interesting place to, uh, to deliver a message. Um, the, why don't you swallow broken glass? That was based on something somebody said to me on Twitter a long time ago, like 12 years ago. Uh, you know, Twitter being what it is, somebody told me to commit suicide in a very um, kind of like bizarre formulation. It wasn't that, but it was something quite close to that. So that kind of stuck in my mind as this sort of deranged message and just kind of thinking of, um, you know, the way a message might affect other people, like who else saw it? I guess, 
you can think of Twitter as being sort of the equivalent of a glass window. You know, everybody can see everything. Um, you write something in the glass, you write something on Twitter directed to one person, but, you know, thousands of people can see it. So that was the starting point with that. But then I think I was sort of thinking in terms of, um, you know, the way events can kind of echo through time. So the person who writes that disturbing message on the hotel window, he's thinking about this other message that he saw, uh, Sweet Me Up, written by 13-year-old Vincent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of gives him the idea, you know, of, um, of doing that. So the way that, you know, a 13-year-old's rebellious graffiti moment can kind of have ramifications in really unexpected ways. Yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into you and your works. So if you're ready, we will begin. Go for it. What word do you love to work into your writing? Saturation. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. Everybody says moist. I think about about 60% of people say moist. Um, <laughs> it's a gross word. <laughs> where's your favorite place to write? Uh, in my home office. Yeah. Super boring. Where could you never write? You know what? I'm stumped. I've written in some really weird places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't write in a nightclub. How's that? Okay. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, run on sentences. What was the first book you remember reading? The primary readers, Dick and Jane. Mm-hmm. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? Um, I just finished The Plague, uh, Albert oh, Camus. Yeah. Um, what book would you like to have written? Um, Sweet Frances by Irene Nemirovsky. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Maybe a sweeping historical epic that's totally linear. (laughs) And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I'd like to hear that they were moved. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Emily St. John Mandel, whose novel The Glass Hotel is available wherever books are sold, and you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Emily, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Sue Monk Kidd about her new novel, The Book of Longings. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.